Hi guys, to our latest podcast, we have with us Sarah Griffiths, and she is um, she has a diploma in clinical homeopathy. I hope I said that correctly, and she's an animal nutrition specialist. So, Sarah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so I am. Uh, I started out as an animal trainer, actually, just like you. <laughs> uh, so yes. I worked. Uh, my first job, very first job ever, was uh, as a seventeen-year-old. I I loved animals so much, so I started working in a pet store. So that was my first experience. I realized that's not where I really wanted it to be. Um, and I got really into um, learning about species-appropriate nutrition through my training job. I uh, apprenticed with a, um, a, a fairly well-known animal trainer that works in the film industry in BC here in Canada. And uh, he had uh, domestic animals, but also a lot of wild animals. So we had wolves, we had big cats, we had um, a whole wide variety. And then we had the dogs and, and the domestic cats as well. And um, I've always been such an animal lover and I couldn't really understand. That was my first line of questioning as to like why the wolves were eating like chicken carcasses and liver and beef and you know all of these meat based items and then the dogs were getting fed this very low quality dry food and same with the cats and uh the the big cats were fed meat and the little cats were fed this dry food and i was so interested by the divide of that because these domesticated animals come from these other species so um and then i got my first dog and uh i i i realized very quickly that i didn't want to do dry food with him he just was not thriving the way that i thought a young dog should thrive and so i decided of my own accord to uh switch him onto like a, a home prepared diet um okay. this was like 25 years ago so uh it was like witchcraft <laughs> so I I did go to my vet and I asked if there was any like recipes that they could recommend for me to start with and um they just were like horrified that I would even ask this question. Uh they were just like, No, you're gonna hurt your dog and your dog is gonna get sick and they're not gonna grow properly and you know, it's really, really bad and there's lots of bacteria and all of these things. So um and I just, in my heart, I just did not feel that way. So I, you know, I, I questioned it. I went looking, I went researching. There was not a lot of research at the time on raw food at all for, no. for domestic animals. And um, my dog at the time, I used to walk to work down this very busy city street to get to my, to my job. And on the way I, I, uh, my dog actually dragged me into this veterinary clinic and the big, there's a big sign in the window that said feed your dog's bones and raw food. And I was like, oh, this is this is what I want to do. And it, this is a vet clinic and this is so amazing. So my dog was actually the one that showed me um, the, the way here. <laughs> and uh, then I ended up meeting my mentor who, uh, her name is Julianne Lee. She was 
from um, the adored beast apothecary. So she's got quite a large company in both Canada and the U.S. now. Um, she's also a classical homeopath and um, has a whole like supplement line and probiotic line for, for animals. So um, I spent 10 years uh, it, working in her clinic, um, ended up being the nutritional consultant for the clinic, working with the vets, uh, seeing all the case diagnostics, recommending diets, putting diet plans together. The vets would sign off on them and review them and stuff. Um, so that's basically, it, it's totally not a school-based way of learning. But it, within that, I was also doing my classical homeopathic uh, degree. So I was doing pathology, anatomy, um, plus the veterinary clinic, mm -hmm. plus the human clinic. So I was getting all of this information embedded into me at a very young age. Um, and then I did for a while consider if I wanted to become a veterinarian. And then I decided because of all this information that I had learned that veterinary school was going to be very, 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 uh, difficult mentally for me to, um, to go through that process. So I decided to, um, work clinically instead and be supported by some really amazing vets. And then uh, I, I feel that through that experience, um, at this point, um, I, I've taken on clients of my own um, and I work with a lot of veterinarians all over the world. So now I'm, I'm primarily online um, and I do private cases, but I'm also starting to teach uh, okay. a lot more. Great. And uh, keeping up with my articles and um, uh, just trying to get into the teaching phase rather than so many uh, private clients. But I do love working with the private clients because once you see enough cases of the same thing, like, say, a skin disease or gut mm -hmm. disease, which are two of the things that I see the most um, with dogs, um, you, you do get to understand what the normals are and what the conventional route looks like and what that pathway looks like in terms of long-term health and then what it looks like if we make these very slow or integrative um, changes over time it takes longer um and and the owner has to have some level of dedication as well to the process because even though you can have lots of up, ups and downs um so we always try to be as gentle as possible when we're kind of Phasing them into, especially a new um, diet that they've never, they're not used to, right? So, okay. so I I do specialize primarily in cat and dog digestive disorders. That's one of the probably the number one thing that I I see. Lots of allergies, um, and lots of animals uh, with cancer at young ages. So. Um, and this is, you know, there are the many reasons for that, but diet is really foundational. So even though I'm a homeopath and I, I, I love homeopathy and it has such, a, it's such a powerful tool. Um, we also need to ensure that those remedies have the best chance of working. And if, if there are obstacles to helping that animal be in homeostasis, um, which diet would be probably one of the 
the more serious ones. And one of the ones that we can control in the environment, um, if that is constantly a daily insult to the animal, especially to their gut and their immune system, um, it can cause other forms of integrative medicines or approaches to not work as well because you're creating daily systemic inflammation because the body is having to deal with this processed input. Okay. Um, so, so that's, and now there's so much science on, um, on, you know, the, the benefits of raw versus dry, um, you know, and, and how amazingly different it is, how, how different the microbiome is compared to table fed dogs and cats versus dry fed dogs. And, um, you know, it's starting to slowly become, uh, more scientific rather than a fad. <laughs> very slowly, very, very, <laughs> very slowly. slowly. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how it is in in North America. Probably better than where you are. <laughs> where I am, it's um. Let's put it this way: if you feed anything other than kibble, you're almost, almost um, you know painted as some sort of cruel person and how could you kind of and yeah. there's a few vets that that have no problem with it mm. right some actually see the benefits yes. so i was i was in the veterinary school teaching a safe handling course to all the instructors yes. and i took i took my dog ninja with me yeah. and i had him lying down for an hour and a half under the the whiteboard and was lecturing and then we had an intermission where i did a demo with him first in obedience and then everybody posed with pictures with him he was a beautiful jet black german shepherd oh, and it's... people would put their arm around his neck and have picture taken and all of that and then i did a protection demo with him right after ah. uh, and people were <laughs> like i was just hugging this dog yes. you know and got got the heart effect after the fact <laughs> and then we went back inside and I put him under the whiteboard again and said, okay, plats. And he stayed there for another hour and a half with me lecturing. And then at the end of it, they, I asked him, seeing that I have all the experts here, how old is this dog? And the closest they got was four and a half. Hmm. And I said, no, he's eight. And everybody's like, Oh wow! How could he be looking like like this at, at eight? There's no gray on the nose or anything. And then there was a young vet in the back that said, "You feed raw." I said, "Yes." She said, "That could be the only way he's looking like that." And it turns out they have a youth research or a student research program in the vet school, and she's involved in a long-term study on raw food. Oh really? Yes. Oh, it's very so, interesting. So, so yeah. So that was, and she immediately that she came out and said, "Yeah, you feed raw. This is the only way he could look the way he's looking, right?" Very, because very they have they only it's only early days. I think they're only a couple of years into the ten year study. Yes. Uh, and but they already discovered that most commercial kibble contains chemicals that promote aging. And that's why you see dogs that are seven years old that really nose starts to go gray and all of this. Got and it. me growing up, 
the if if any dog food was used, it was freeze dried raw. Yes. And it came in big, fifty kilo, you know, agricultural. Um, what would you how would you translate it? Agricultural um, co-op. Yes, like a big. So, yeah, in a big white paper um, bag, you know, <laughs> and it, it was commercially available to farmers for their dogs and all that. And, and that was that was freeze dried and dehydrated raw food. You have to add water to it. Wait a little fifteen minutes. For it to, to swell up and, and then it just fed to the dog. Um, I myself went to a local butcher and told him, okay, this is what I can use. This is what I can't use. So when he has this big chopping block, he has two bins instead of one. So whatever I can't use and, and he does this, including his paper towels, went into there and everything else went into my bin. And I oh, would collect nice. it twice, twice uh, every second day or something. Very and nice. I would feed my dogs with it. That is anything from raw green tripe, yeah. which which okay. it's not it stinks, ni- it's not it nice to handle, but it's <laughs> it's it dogs loved it. Yeah, and it's really um, good. you know spine spines to chew on and yeah. stuff like that. You know some organ meat, some kidneys, some. So if the kidney was accidentally damaged in in in, in butchering the animal. And it had a cut, and I can't put it in the showcase. I would get it. You oh, know? that's and, so nice thing. You had access. And, and I would feed those things, and I did it because it was free. Yes. But also, but, but also because you know it was it was a way of of the dogs always look good and worked well. So you know why not? Not that's... I wasn't by any stretch of the imagination scientific about it, and I don't think I I'm still not. Really scientific about, yeah. You know, so people ask me a lot. How do you determine how much food to give your dog? I said I'm looking at my dog. Yeah. And yeah. if I find okay, you're getting a little chunky, I give you less. And if mm-hmm. okay, you lost a little pound or two, right? I give you a little more today. And and so I adjust it daily because we don't eat the same amount every day either. And so it's a constant adjustment. And then sometimes you can't get something. So you put something else to, you know, to compensate for it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that is kind of, you know, there, there is a, a point where too much science is not good. <laughs> um, you know, and, and to going back to, you know, what I teach my clients is, is to use your intuition uh, and to do exactly what you're you're saying, you know, looking at the actual animal that's in front of you, what are they doing? What, what are, how are they feeling? How much energy do they have? What's their weight look like? What's their body condition? Do they have any, you know, things going on um, health wise? And how, you know, what, what can you do to support them in that time? Because it changes from the time they're puppies to mm-hmm. adults to, seniors you know there's a whole process that happens um and so many different um ways of feeding and and um and foods that you know you can rotate in uh that you know a lot of people get really really obsessed with the uh afco um like the uh american Mm -hmm. association rules of regulate or you know their um 
you know, requirements, nutritional requirements for dogs and cats. And um, this is something that I teach because, you know, in veterinary world, that's really the only thing that exists. It's not balanced every meal, every day, all the time. It's it's not balanced. But it's going to hurt your dog. So there and then there's the other side where, you know, you get you know, veterinarians telling you stories that, you know, a puppy was fed on steak and nothing else and ended up with rickets and, and, you know, deformed skeleton and things Mm -hmm. like that. So, you know, but those cases are so few and far between and they have to be going on for such a long period of time usually. Um, and, And you do have to, there are things that you have to add to balance diet correctly but it really isn't about doing it in every single meal and that's something that's very important to me for people to understand um especially when i'm working with them because a lot of them come and they have all this input you know i have an intake form Mm -hmm. and they have all this information and all the exact amounts of everything that they're doing and it's very exact and and which is amazing because it obviously shows like how much they care about their Mm -hmm. dog um, but at the same time, it's like, you know, you could see the, the stress level that that might bring to, to have to be so, um, so, uh, vigilant about it all the time. So, so I try to help people like, especially with adult dogs, um, you know, over a two week period, you can, you can create balance over that two week period by using a wide variety of different foods and that's how we eat and that's how dogs would eat as well and one of the things that i really got into um, i do have an article with some of the research on my website it's um uh, about what dogs should really be eating and i went into the very specific studies that were done on wolves and what wolves do um their eating patterns change during the seasons so mm-hmm. the winter time their main prey is large prey like elk um very large animals and the reason that that happens is because the temperature is so cold that um they can take down a large animal like that and then they can preserve it in the snow for several days and eat that mm-hmm. animal several days without it spoiling in the summer if they were to do that they would really have maybe 24 to 36 hours before that would no longer be uh appropriate so the energy the energy output on hunting that elk would be kind of wasted because it takes Mm -hmm. a lot of energy and and coordination to take down an animal that size that has a lot of endurance and you know, mm-hmm. so in the summertime, they actually switch over to small prey, um, like rabbits and um, ferns, like that. So, and in the fall, they eat a lot of uh, fallen fruit, um, cherries, apples, um, berries, all kinds of berries, whatever's around, blueberries, and everything's fallen. So a lot of it is partially fermented. So that's actually a really natural way for a dog to eat that kind of food is in a partially fermented state 
plus it gives them that probiotic intake plus they eat a lot of grass they've they've studied quite extensively with, with coyotes wolves they actually intake especially certain times in the year quite a lot of wreckage in, in the form of grass so they're they're actually giving themselves these prebiotic fibers to support their gut and then they have these big changeover, seasonal changeovers, and it's almost like they're like refreshing their system so that they can switch over to this different kind of workload with the hunting and the different types of meat they're going to be eating. And it's just this natural process that they cycle through every single year over this 365 days. And what I've really realized is that this, you know, with people, it's very popular to do like seasonal local eating and things like that and what i've found is that the research is showing that your microbiome does the same thing on a small tiny scale it actually okay. changes on a 24-hour cycle on a 28-day cycle with the moon <laughs> which is crazy and then also on this 365 day cycle and longer ones as well so so for us to eat in relation to the environment and what is actually available in the environment at that time, it actually interfaces us with the environment and, and reduces oxidative stress, supports our gut, supports our immune system, reduces um, histamine responses, allergies, inflammation, all of these things. It's, it's just a natural way of cycling things. So okay. when we at feeding a dog the same thing every single day you're not actually using the the environmental input to help that dog interface with their environment so that's that's kind of going a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole with nutrition but you can actually use nutrition in that way and the only way to do that is through variety and through intuition basically right uh, so I have noticed, for instance, I have a, a neighbor who has a, a very large mango tree. Oh, nice. Very and nice. And it hangs over into <laughs> I my... I wish I had a neighbor with it, a mango. It, it hangs over into, into my yard. So nice. normally in their food, I would incorporate some, you know, some fruits, some banana, some what we have here that yes. is safe, yes. you know, because like strawberries and blueberries are very expensive here because they don't grow here. So, right. and during that time where they pick up mangoes that fall into the yard, mm. um, while I'm trying to stop them from eating them because it's these small mangoes and one dog, she eats it complete. Oh, wow. And then vomits out only the seed. Oh, wow. I don't know how she does it. it, you know. <laughs> <That's> and <laughs> others, they would just eat the fruit and leave the seed, but I hope they don't accidentally eat one. Yes. But during that time, I give them a lot less. I don't put fruits in in their daily food. Yeah. Because yeah, they, they, get, they get a it. decent amount already. For sure. Yeah. So right now it's out of season because we don't really have four seasons here. We have two. We have rainy season and dry season. So they, we don't get the, the change in food so much. Right. But so now I'm, I'm giving them bananas. Yeah. You know, break up a banana in the bowl. And mix that in, and uh, you know different types of meat, and then you know I'm in need of some information on on other stuff like 
what bones. Right. That's a big right? question. Because yes. all I'm hearing here is bones are the devil. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I know if a dog kills a pheasant, they're eating the whole thing. Yeah. And live. So so why is chicken bone so bad? Yes. Yeah. So that's a very, very uh it's a, a I could answer that in a lot of different ways. So I'll I'll try and make it simple. Um <laughs> Thank you. So the number one thing <laughs> to remember is that cooked Bones are not mm -hmm. the same as raw bones. Right. They chemically change. Mm -hmm. They become very, very brittle. They're actually not even that nutritionally valuable because all of the good stuff is taken, you know, goes into the broth. Mm -hmm. goes into the broth. So bone broth is a great, uh, great addition. But you would obviously take those cooked bones out of there. So the bones splinter in a very specific way when they're cooked. And this happens also if dogs, you know, shove them under something and it's really hot where you are, um, and then they won't find them later and they're really dried out. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've had an incident with one of my dogs where he put a rib bone somewhere underneath the pot and then he dug it back out again and cracked it off and cracked off this big piece and it shattered and he had to have surgery because he perforated. Okay. Gut. Um, that's the only incident that I've had in 25 years of um, okay. problems with. So I don't, um, I don't feed a lot of rib bones, but a lot of dogs do eat rib bones and they eat them just fine. Um, the most important thing to remember with bones is what animal it's coming from and what animal you're feeding it. So if you have a very small dog that has a very soft mouth mm -hmm. and is a kind of a light, like very delicate eater, you can you can do quite a good variety of bones um, with that dog, like um, chicken necks, uh, rib bones, uh, little slices of femur, um, little slices of, of knuckle bones and things like that. Um, if you have a dog like a Rottweiler who is like huge and they love food and they just want to mm -hmm. consume everything whole, then you would have to adjust not only for the size of the dog, but the eating behavior of that dog. So this might okay. be something very interesting to you because you're a dog trainer. <laughs> so you, I always take into consideration the eating habits and behaviors of that dog, like the natural way that they want to eat. So we have all these devices for you know, dogs on dry feed where, you know, they slow, slow, the slow feeders and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because these dogs are like inhaling their food, literally. And it can cause a lot of problems. So that can, the same problems can occur with bones and even with raw food. Um, and dogs can choke. If they're given a bone that's too small for their body size and their throat size, um, they can swallow it whole and they can choke. So you have to make sure that with these very large dogs, I've always had like mastiffs and great Danes and mm -hmm. shepherds and things. So I have a lot of experience with dogs that are like garburators and they just want to consume. They're like, ah, as soon as you give them their food, yeah. <laughs> they yeah. go insane, right? 
So um, all, all my dogs. <laughs> yes. So so in those in the cases of those dogs, I always offer like very large prey items. Um, so with chicken, always raw. You can do like chicken back for necks. You can do whole chickens. I do quarter chickens and half chickens with my my dog now. She's eighty pounds or so, um, but she loves like chicken legs, chicken thighs, half chickens. Um, Chicken backs and necks. She's she goes down on those, and she has been eating those her whole life. I've been feeding those for twenty five years. Um, because poultry bones are hollow, they're very easy for dogs to digest. So okay. they will. You'll notice if you're a raw feeder, you'll notice that. And this is something that's scary for a lot of new raw new raw feeders, is depending on what type of meat you're feeding and how much bone you feed that day, the poops could be like anywhere from black to like a very light, like crumbly yellow color. And so, and if it's really, really dry and really, really crumbly, that's all the bone that's digested down into like a powder. And this is mm-hmm. power of the canine vet is that it is able to do this job. Um, if a dog is not able to do that job, which sometimes they're not if they're a kibble-fed dog, um, then we have to slowly, slowly switch them over to have the capacity to do that. Because their gut is so different when they're eating dry food versus when they're eating raw. So you so- can have a lot more digestive concerns if you're feeding bones with dry and some dogs it's fine and they have no problems right but some people will try to start feeding bones to a kibble fed dog and then they have this massive diarrhea problem or you know something much worse god forbid um so you always have to consider like how is my dog's microbiome health how like their gut health do they have diarrhea or constipation on a regular basis um what kind of eater is my dog um, and how can I make this like the safest and most beneficial process for my dog? And how's their dental health? Things like that too, because if they have any sort of dental, um, you know, uh, needs that need to be met, like extractions and things like that, you could, um, run into issues feeding hard bones, right? Okay. So you, you always have to kind of start with what dog you're feeding and then what bones are available to you. And with these big guys, um, what I usually recommend is like whole knuckles, which are like this big. So from beef or from mm-hmm. buffalo. And there's been some nice studies done on those that show very significant changes in the amount of calculus that builds up on the teeth, like they'll show the before and after of how much calculus can be removed just from eating one knuckle, like chewing on one knuckle bone. And these dogs with these very big, wide, strong jaws, not only does it help um, with strengthening the, the jaw, like especially if you're doing all this kind of protection mm-hmm. like that, um, that chewing action actually stimulates the, the cranium and the brain and it actually releases happy endorphins like dopamine okay. all of that kind of stuff so 
there's multiple benefits. The other thing that I would do with a large dog like that would be um, like half chickens um, or even whole chickens, depending on how hard they're working. Uh, and what you should see with those bones is that they they have a very light kind of drier, lighter colored poop. Mm -hmm. um, there won't be any bones like coming out of your dog. And if there I is, there's a major digestive issue going on and you have to something about it i i always <laughs> you always see those those posts online and with veterinarians uh, don't give your dog bones and yes. dogs don't digest bones and yes. also is that why some of the poop is white yes because they don't digest it into a powder yes yeah, <laughs> so it's, yeah it's very once you get used to feeding raw you can very clearly see um, that it is very, very, very possible for them to do that and, and very natural. And also because they're carnivorous, especially as puppies, there's so much controversy about feeding raw to puppies. Um, but, you know, Dr. Ian Billinghurst is one of the pioneers in, in like feed your puppies bones because that's the only way you can guarantee that they're really not going to get hip dysplasia. And he did a whole entire like, I've seen presentations of his and he had his own magazine for a while called Carnivora. And um, he published this beautiful article, which I can't find online anywhere, but he was talking about how, um, you know, calcium from bone from like a bioavailable source for a dog will actually, and, and having all that collagen that's attached to the, to the joint bones mm. and all that stuff is all going to help your dog um you know reduce especially with these big guys reduce the chances that your dog is going to have hip dysplasia and that hip dysplasia is not necessarily a genetic problem even though we can kind of test for it through the parents and things like this um there's also a great study out of finland now through the dog risk program who the dog risk foundation i think they're called or the dog risk project um, and Dr. Bjorkman is the head veterinarian on that project, and she works out of the University of Helsinki, and she's been doing research on raw food for about 15 years now. And nice. one of her papers is on German shepherds and the risk of them developing hip dysplasia, eating kibble versus raw, and it's significantly higher with kibble-fed German shepherds. So she did it specifically with these dogs that have like this very bad reputation for, for developing this disease. Um, you know, she's also done a huge, huge uh, survey, survey style study on um, 16,000 pounds in and around Finland that feed their dogs raw because it's quite a lot more common to feed raw yeah. in Europe. Um, and uh her her questionnaire was quite large and she was trying to um determine how many of those households believed that their they or their family members had contracted either e coli salmonella or or listeria or some kind of scary bacteria and become ill because of their dog's raw food and what she found out of 16,000 households that feed raw every day have children 
crawling around on the ground, touching the dog, all these things that they say is your kid's going to die and grandma's yeah. going to die. Everyone's going to die. Your dog is, your dog is going <laughs> to shed salmonella. Right. So she found that uh, 0.04% of those households <laughs> had maybe a little bit of an indication that possibly they could have contracted some kind of bacterial infection from their dog's raw food specifically. <laughs> uh, so that is like a very insignificant number. When we look at the numbers for, you know, dogs that get cancer, which is basically one in two, that's 50% of dogs are going to get cancer in their lifetime. And one of the studies that she's done is to show that metastasis is very influenced by inflammation and inflammation is very influenced by diet and and processed foods so you know if we look at all the statistics not just the ones that the vets learn in school and we you know kind of zoom out more and we look at more of this research that's coming out on um you know what it looks like between these two types of feeding styles it's you know, I know that these most veterinarians are not shown these scientific papers, um, but when they are shown these papers, which are becoming quite, there's many of them now, um, many of them are starting to go, hey, interesting. Like, at least they're like, wow, there's science on this, right? And sometimes they're so analytical that they need the science mm -hmm. show um that you know it's true so it it's it, in in dog and cat world it's it's getting better <laughs> there's more there's way more veterinarians that are you know pro raw or just you know fine with raw even if mm. they're conventional yeah I've, North America. I've met some here too that one in particular he says mark i'm with you on this my problem is i don't have my own clinic i'm working for another vet and i can't see it Yes, and there's lots right? of politics. Because they're, they're selling chow in the clinic. So, you know, mm. and it's one particular brand that I will not mention, but, you we know. all know what it is. Any, any, <laughs> any, client, any client asked me, I said, yeah, so you're feeding cancer in a bag. And they look at me like, how can you say No. I said, that's I, what it is. As far as I'm concerned, that's what it is. You know where the, the legal, a few years ago, I went on, on AFCO's website, mm -hmm. and, and I, and I kind of researched what the legal requirement is for a hundred percent complete and balanced. A dog has to, or a hundred dogs have to survive twenty-one weeks on eating nothing but this food. It's okay if they die in week twenty-two, but as long as they made it twenty-one weeks and they're still breathing, it's a hundred percent complete and balanced. And the only things that they that they actually use for blood assays, like blood work on those dogs, is their CBC, which is their white blood cell count and their red blood cell count, <laughs> which is, makes no sense because you can't see their electrolytes, you can't see their liver function, you can't see their kidney function. And also with young dogs, young dogs are master compensators. They can compensate for years eating a very terrible diet. Um, as long as it has enough calcium in it, that's pretty much, you know, the, 
they have such a high requirement for calcium that all of these fearful things about rickets and calcium deficiencies and bone problems. As long as you have enough calcium in that diet, you have enough fat and protein, and it doesn't matter where that fat and protein really comes from. It could be from totally species inappropriate things. Um, and then if you if you really dive into it and you look at the the ingredients, I have the book on my desk right here. This is all of the requirements, all of the definitions for all of the ingredients that can be used in pet food legally, as far as AFO is concerned. And they will they have definitions for peanut hulls. Soybean hulls, basically like sawdust. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's basically what you're feeding your dog. Um, there's a lot of like preservatives that are allowed to go in. Um, there's a lot of types of oils that are very omega six rich that can cause a lot of. It's very pro-inflammatory. And then they'll they'll you know on the bags a lot of them will say you know omega threes are added to this food to balance out the omega sixes but omega threes don't hold up in a bag they the only way they hold up really they even get degraded if they're frozen so basically you have to feed if you're going to feed omega threes you have to feed fresh fish fresh frozen. Um, those are the best ways to feed because the, those oils can oxidate so quickly. The other thing that's really, really unfortunate, which is, you know, there is some mention in AFCO about it, um, but the the rate at which animals are dying and getting ill from aflatoxin poisoning, which is um, a, a, a type of po- uh, toxin that is outputted by fungal growth on grain. So if you're feeding grains or legumes, you can have very high aflatoxin amounts in your food. And these companies, these big companies, they don't have to test every batch for that unless they're super, you know, diligent. They can test for it every six months. They can also change the ingredients in the bag and not tell you for six months while they switch over their labeling. So there's all of these things that you like you literally don't know what you're feeding your dog. It's I'm, it's just I'm, personally I can't do it. <laughs> and commercially commercial dog food started in the thirties by taking grain that was no longer fit for human consumption. Right. And instead Very of dis- Yeah, and instead of disposing of it, baked it into some flakes and yes. made dog food out of it. Right. So yes. it's right, then, like, the right marketing in... is so massive that everyone was like, oh, this is so convenient. This is great. Yeah. And then my question is, <laughs> look at all the big food companies. Yeah. And then ask yourself, why is it that all the biggest dog food companies are companies that make human food? Right. Why, 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 all, of a sudden, why all of a sudden are they going into dog food? What do you think is the reason for that? Yeah. One of the reasons is if you have ingredients that you can no longer use for human consumption, you would have to right. pay a company to dispose of them. So instead right. of doing that, it is all get, getting rendered and yeah. goes into dog food and making a profit with it. Yeah. 
That is yeah, really, that and, is really and deep. So it's basically garbage. It's what you're feeding, literally. Yeah. Garbage. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when this... you really think about that, and you think about you know what you would allow yourself to eat as well, you know, there there's there's so many more regulations for human food, but the the quality of human food in North America is also very low. You, right? Mm-hmm. So. You know, if, if the quality of human food is here and these are the regulations for human food, it's like a wild west for, for dogs and cats. And the only yeah. way to really ensure that you know what you're feeding and you know that you're, you know, your dog is getting nutri- nutritional value from, you know, real food is to do it yourself. And there are a lot of companies now, like the commercial raw food companies that are doing a good job. Um, but you know, there's all this controversy about the AFCO balancing and all this stuff. And I still feel like that's, you know, it's, it's a piece of the puzzle. We can use it as a tool, uh, to, you know, get a, get an idea of, you know, where these values should be. But I think because they're all minimum values, it's just the amount of this nutrient that you need to avoid nutritional deficiency. It is not the amount that the dog needs to thrive and and live to be old and healthy and have no arthritis Mm. and et cetera, et cetera, right? Like there's, there's a big gap in that logic. We don't look at, like when I'm feeding dogs, I don't look at minimums. You know, there are some maximums like with fat soluble vitamins like vitamin A and D and E where you could overdose and it could be bad, but it's very hard to do that actually. You ha- would have to be pretty dedicated to actually cause those problems with real food. Um, but supplementing you could you could do that. Um, but you know, I'm always looking at like what do dogs actually eat, how do they eat, and what is this what is this dog telling me physically energetically what it needs like if you know there's a lot of uh ways to indications for like what nutrients might be low um you know if you for example this is just one of many you have a dog that you feel is not really understanding the training that you're teaching slower not really Fully like on it, not quick, you know, and they're having trouble comprehending the exercises. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time for them to learn. That would be an indication to me that that dog is probably having an omega three deficiency, and okay. would need more fish, more omega three input. And a lot of times, you'll see that dog can actually learn better. And there's lots of science on that as well. So that's just one of many things where you could say, you know, dogs with really super itchy atopic dermatitis, a lot of these dogs are iodine deficient and zinc deficient. They're eating these balanced AFCO diets, but they're completely deficient in these nutrients, right? And if you're iodine deficient for long enough, you can run into hypothyroidism, which is also a huge epidemic in dogs. So there's all of these things that you know, you can look at all of these diseases as separate, genetically predisposed things, but genes are, you know, if you study epigenetics, 
that's the science that says that your genes don't just do random things. They're not pre-programmed. They, they take in information from the environment and then they do their thing based on that. So right. diet, stress levels, environment of all different types, air quality, water quality, all of these things. So that's what determines what happens to those genes and how they express. So, right. so, you know, anyone who can tell me that diet doesn't matter or diet, you know, this kind of diet is the way that to go. A processed diet is heavily shown to be very, cause major dysfunction in humans. And, and it, it's no different for dogs. Like it, that is actually science. <laughs> and yeah. the, so the, the other science is very industry driven science, which isn't actually science. Because if you're doing no. studies that are, are, are predetermined as to what you want the outcome to be and funded by a party that is invested in having this outcome so that they can teach it to this mass network of professional animal people. Um, that's not how science is done. Yeah. That's not it, real science. It, and, and oftentimes <laughs> I, have, I have stopped blaming veterinarians for not, it's not knowing... Their fault for not knowing about nutrition because yeah. not so much here but in other countries universities that teach veterinary medicine don't yes. really employ nutritionists yeah. so they get guest lecturers that are funded and paid for by dog food companies that will tell them what they need to hear in order to promote the product later yes and that, that is a fallout right and so, the thing that I deal with a lot with, um, you know, my clients is, you know, people come to me because they are choosing to do something different. They don't mm -hmm. want to do it the conventional way they feel in their heart, their gut, whatever, that this is not how they want to take care of their dog. Um, but oftentimes they will come and they will tell me, you know, asking their vet is asking like if they're seeing a nutritionist that they need to see a board certified veterinary nutritionist or it's not actually a real nutritionist and so for me you know i don't have that certification i'm not a veterinarian um but because i'm not a veterinarian and i haven't gone through that schooling i've put my time into clinical analysis clinical experience, field experience, training and raising dogs, breeding dogs. I have this whole field experience that, you know, go, is a completely different mindset. Goes, goes a very long way. Right? Yes. So, so, so you know, it, to, to think about how, uh, how much veterinarians and these integrative practitioners have to offer each other it is just so massive. And, and a lot of the veterinarians that I work with who are, you know, open-minded and, and have, a, um, you know, they, they want to learn. They want to keep learning, which is kind of really the only prerequisite to any being good at anything, right? Um, but they're willing to do the diagnostics. Like I, I say, you know, hey, we should, we should test this dog for hyperthyroidism and we should send it to this lab because this 
vet is an endocrinologist. She's not just a vet. She's, you know, she knows what she's talking about. So, and then some of them will be like, wow, I didn't even know this lab existed. And then we can like, you know, they can take the blood, they can send the blood, they can help to uh, prescribe the hypothyroid mm. medication. That's what's needed. And then we work together and they actually, I have some vets that, you know, they, they, this kind of goes to show the, the tunnel vision of it sometimes. I have this one vet that is, is lovely and she um, deals with a lot of cats and I've helped a couple, two or three of her clients now with hyper cats that have been diagnosed with hyperthyroidism and kidney failure, which is a, it's kind of a triad thing where they can get like kidney failure, heart disease, and hyperthyroidism all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then when they get put onto hyperthyroid medication to bring their thyroid levels down, then they can start to have more kidney dysfunction or heart dysfunction. Oh, and wow. so there's triad of things that they don't get taught in veterinary school but i've been seeing this in clinic for like years and years and years like 20 years after a while you see enough of these hundreds of cases where you have to adjust the thyroid medication based on this triad you can't just do it based on the thyroid levels you also have to do it based on the kidney levels right and then we also have these other you know homeopathic support we have supplements we can use um and so i've had these outcomes where clinically they take the blood they see the cat asymptomatic but seemingly having this terrible problem but the cat is actually looking at the cat is fine like totally fine like not skinny not peeing and drinking Mm -hmm. tons looking great so the vet now has now she sends me all of her hyperthyroid cats because <laughs> she thinks i'm like a whiz with these hyperthyroid cats there's only one thing that i you know have a protocol for but it's just because i have this clinical experience in this very holistic way where we haven't really overdone it with the drugs we've done a lot with diagnostics and we look at diagnostics first we look at the case we have all these extra tools you know, our our clients are all in raw, so it, it the outcomes are completely different. So yeah. you begin to create these different protocols that are not medically based. And you see these amazing results over and over and over again. And then you can say, okay, this isn't just a um anecdotal like one or two cases. This is like this is a thing that yeah. you can use to help a lot of animals. So yeah, exper- you know. experience is is difficult to beat. It really is. Yeah. Right? So it, I have learned over the years to, to just you know observe my dog. So if if I see that the dog is scraping a weedy lawn and starts eating some dirt, okay, the dog needs some more minerals, right? So we grate Good. some carrots over the food, we boil some pumpkin and mix it in, and then oh, the behavior stops. Yes. And you know. It might be very old-fashioned, but I have learned that if your dog's coat is nice and shiny, the dog is healthy. It's a very good indicator. Right? Definitely. And if I'm looking at my dog Foz, he is glistening in the sun. This, yeah. When people look at the videos on my social media, they say, I love his shiny coat. Oh, shiny. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the same. <laughs> to me, it's, 
all my dogs look like this, right? Is this, that's how it's supposed to be. Not a mistake. You know? And so when when I then get lectured, you know, about, you know, giving raw food, it's like, I have a lot of clients that eat the food that you recommend and their coat is dull and they don't, not really happy working and they're, you know, they're not the same. They don't have the same energy level. And I know genetically they ha they're supposed to have the drive. I know the parents and grandparents and so forth, but this dog is not really the same way, you know. And then when the client goes and does feed raw, then a month later they have a different dog. And all of a sudden the dog is full of energy and, you know, they say, oh my gosh, I didn't know. <laughs> And I'm sure you yeah. see that so clearly because of the type of work that these dogs are doing, that there's, you know, a strenuous component to it. They need to be in the best shape they can be um, more than a house dog or a pet dog, right? They need to have that extra nutrition yeah. and that very specific, um, you know, input to to be able to express themselves fully. And, uh, you know, I do see that a lot too. I, I saw that when I worked, you know, with the, with the wild cats and the, the domestic cats. Uh, the domestic cats were getting kidney failure and, you know, all these terrible heart disease and all these things. And, the you know, the big cats would be like, 25 years old and they're still going and they're a little rickety but they're old <laughs> you know and um just to see the difference in the longevity you know especially clinically when you see a lot of really sick animals or you see animals switching over from one kind of food to another and they do have a pathology on the dry food um a serious disease of some disease process of some sort and you see these dogs you know like you said a month later it's it's like a miracle really <laughs> a lot of times it is so you know if it but if you're in clinic and you're not practicing that and you only see the random case here and there and then and then you see you know the dog that chokes on a bone and has to have it removed or you know, from, you know, grabbed a cooked chicken off the counter or whatever. That's not the same as feeding raw. If your dog stole a cooked chicken and ate it and got sick, like that's not the same as feeding raw diet. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of uh, misinterpretation about what raw feeding is and what it isn't. Um, and uh, I, I feel like the the open mindedness is is re it really is starting to to come through because there's more veterinarians, you know, seeing the benefits. And, I believe it's know, I believe it's more the younger veterinarians that are now heading in that direction. Yeah, from, except from what Dr. Billinghurst, we have to you know give props to because he's he's an older guy, but he he's. He's very, very adamant <laughs> that raw is the way to go. <laughs> and he teaches a lot of veterinarians to to, to do that as well. And, okay. you know, and there's another really great uh, veterinarian uh, named Dr. Excuse me, I have his book right here. Um, it's a 
fairly new book called oh, Dr. Connor Brady. And his um, book is called Feeding Dogs. And it's an essential, essential book. If you want to get into the science of why raw is so beneficial and you know, all of the research that he could find it, this book took him 10 years, right? Um, and he's uh, very adamant about raw feeding as well. And um, basically irrefutably explains why dry food is just you know very very prehistoric (laughs) and it's not actually the the new it's actually the new way of feeding it's not the old way of feeding you know we've we've all you know 100 years ago people fed their dogs raw food so you know and for hundreds of generations before that so to to say that we have enough information now we do have enough information to say that genetically there are certain lines and breeds of dogs that are being destroyed because not only are they not being bred very nicely um but they're also being fed very terribly and now there's a lot of studies showing that that can actually generational um effects so with my dog, we bred her, had two litters, um, all raw fed dogs. She was fed totally raw the whole time she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. While she was nursing. All of her puppies were switched right onto raw. And then now they're all, the 12 of them are eating raw and they're four or five years old. Um, and, uh, you know, this is one of the things they say you, you can't, feed a, a pregnant dog raw you can't make healthy litters with raw you can't you can't do all these things with raw and i've done them all i've, uh, I've done it more than once and i've helped mm. so many people do it and you know seeing the reversal of you know diseases that is considered a miracle to yeah. have these yeah. outcomes and it's just it really is you know at some point it's just a choice right it becomes a choice and I'm at a point in my life, I think where I, I used to be really, you know, speak out and say it and fight back and you know, <laughs> fight for the dogs and do up. But you know what, now I basically, I, I've decided that I just want to live through example. And, um, you know, my clients also live, like show me that these examples are, are real. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's better than arguing with people about it so i find and it's so much less stressful for me (laughs) so (laughs) i i really just you know i want to help people understand it and do it properly when they really want to do it and and that includes veterinarians that includes dog trainers that includes you know whoever wants to learn i'm so happy i could talk about it all day as you can tell (laughs) but it's great. I, it's, I'm, I lear- I'm learning to... as we go along here. Yeah. And, it, and you know, I also have lots of things I, I like to, you know, when I find a veterinarian that's really open, then I have tons of questions for them, too. It's not like I'm the expert and I mm. know everything. It's it's an exchange of uh, knowledge and experience and, you know, people to people, right? And that, And that's something that's very important to me is, you know, I feel like we have dogs because... You know, some of us have dogs because we, you know, relate to them because they have unconditional love. And, you know, horses too. I have horses as well and cats. 
and I feel that, you know, we need to have that same thing for people. Some of us forget <laughs> that when we're fighting and, you know, trying to say who's right and wrong. And I feel like that's part of the, the, the process that I don't want to be involved in when it comes to, um, you know, helping animals. I don't want to do it through fighting. I want to do it through um, just willingness and, and offering my energy and my time to people who are who want to learn it and want to understand it. Because I can't help dogs where there's so much resistance, right? I can't help yeah, it's, where there's it's so much and then it becomes so, so like you take it on yourself and it's so stressful. And then you refer that to your own animals. And then, you know, like it's it. So I, I've been really um, adamant about that. And I think um, it creates more space for, for people to be open as well. So, you know, I always, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt. You don't know until you know, right? You can't see yeah. it and see it and then once you see it you can't really unsee it so it yes. really is just about creating those experiences and allowing that space for people to explore and, and accumulate accumulating those experiences as well yeah so for instance i had a, a female pit bull um when she was 12 she was diagnosed with some skin cancer yes because every morning at half past seven there is about a half an hour window where the sun is right by the gate. And uh, she would she would lie there upside down and just sunbathe. Mm -hmm. And I said, because of her age and everything, they don't really want to put her under. And I said, okay, well, if, if you know, if that time comes, let her go happy. She has been yeah. doing this all her life, right? And at 16, she was rushing the gate still. My goodness. When people would walk by. Yeah. It is only in, in, the, in the later stages of her 16th year, she had um, gotten an enlarged heart and then fluid in the lungs. And then we had to make a decision at that point. Yeah. Because that was not something that was reversible. And I said, okay, I don't want to decide. It's you cool. Know? But <laughs> when people hear, wait, back up. Your pit bull was 16. Yeah. Because really? normally the larger the dogs, the less they live. So, yeah, and she was happily rushing, the, rushing the gate at 16 while she carried around four years of skin cancer. You know, <laughs> it's uh, like, how how did this dog live? Yeah, you know, and a good example. It's raw food. You know, it's less, less is more sometimes, too, because the more you start to intervene with conventional immunosuppressive drugs, especially at a young age, um, even if a dog is on raw, um, you know, there's other factors too, like how many antibiotic rounds have they had? How many vaccines mm -hmm. have they had? How, what kind of, are they living in a stressful situation? You know, those are all determining factors of how your dog is yes. And, um, you know, I, I'm going to assume that your dog had mast cell tumors <clears throat> she she had tiny tiny little growths on on her on her belly. Yeah, which is a very common thing for pit bulls, um, and you know, it's in a lot of those cases too. A lot of them have uh, 
you know, been exposed to to a lot of sunshine. They have lighter colored skin. They're more mm -hmm. susceptible, and um, they they grow more histamine, which creates these tumors. Right. And um, you know, we I have so many cases where the owners have decided to not operate and not go mm. down that taking them off and doing the drugs and doing all this stuff and their dogs live very full and happy healthy lives it's just that c word cancer word people panic right there's yeah. a lot of a lot of situations where people panic because they think it's an emergency situation and you know i see that a lot with antibiotic use as well like um the number one most prescribed drug in the world which is metronidazole um, is an antibiotic that's given to animals that are suffering from chronic diarrhea or even short-term, very acute diarrhea. And then they give an antibiotic for that diarrhea. It clears up, then it comes back. And it clears up, and they give it again, and it comes back. So you start to sterilize the microbiome in the gut as your... Um, as your your dog is trying to deal with this diarrhea mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you end up a lot of these cases come to me after they've had maybe three to five rounds of metronidazole and their gut is completely sterilized and they're having non-stop explosive terrible diarrhea like every wow. single day. and they wow. can't even switch to raw because it's way too much bacteria in the raw food for them to switch to raw so then we have to start with a, a cooked diet and then from there we slowly switch them into raw as we build their microbiome that wow. um and we i see that so much and oftentimes when a dog comes to me with like irritable bowel disease you know these chronic chronic cases it's because they've had all of this intervention and they're actually sterile which is kind of what I was talking about in that skin article. Hmm. Same thinking happened on the skin. So, um, and a lot of times if they have a lot of skin issues, they also are having in general. Yeah. After, after I read that article and I thought back, in hindsight, having some regret of all the, the treatments that I put Ninja through. Well, and you know, it, you, you know, so said, it's you all, all the prednisolone and all the antibiotics <laughs> and, and all the, the antibacterial, antifungal shampoos and, and all of that, 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 you know, that we put them through. And I'm like, we went, which, which gets me to another topic that I wanted to touch with you, which is allergies, right? Yes. So then they said, okay, we, we can do an allergy test. Yeah. I said, anything to help him. Right. And. So they took blood and sent it to a lab in the States and I got back this fancy report where he's allergic to this and allergic to that and it was like six or seven different things. And one of the main allergens was beef. Oh yes, that's very common. And I'm like, okay. Really? It, didn't, it didn't quite make sense to me. Then the vet decided, okay, let's put him on a hydrolyzed food for a month. And then we so you know eliminate item by item and try to narrow it down to what he is allergic to. I'm I'm looking at the ingredients list of this food. I say, you want me to give 
Do you want me to feed this? He says, yeah, just for one month. You, do, you can go back to whatever you feed after. Right? We're just doing this for him. I said, okay. So I put down the bowl and I told my dog, I apologize in advance, but you're going to be eating <laughs> this for a month. <laughs> and so in this food, there is nothing in it. And if there's nothing in it, and my dog's condition does not change, then, you know, it was all for nothing. So I said, okay, so if we, uh, his condition didn't change, then let me try out this. So he's allergic to beef. That's what they say. Okay. So for one week, week and a half, I gave him nothing but beef. I gave him chunks. I gave him minced beef. I gave him beef in all forms, some beef liver, <laughs> anything, just beef. And his condition didn't change one iota. Say, so, okay, yeah. so let's scratch that off the list. And then the next one. And then, so lamb, go to lamb, nothing but lamb for a while. Nothing, all the things that he was supposed to be allergic to, I gave him for a week, week and a half, and none of them changed anything. And it's like, so this this allergy test is useless. Yeah. So it costs a lot of it costs a lot of money, and it did absolutely nothing. Yeah, I know it's very expensive. Um, I look at a lot of these tests. There's a lot of different ways to do the testing. There's the very expensive version, the blood testing through the veterinarian. Um, a lot of my really serious allergy clients have also done the NutriScan, which is another one that uh, is a saliva test. And then um, there, there are some pair testing ones that you can do as well. Uh, it's very interesting because oftentimes you'll see that these dogs, you know, they have all of these tests and, you know, blood versus saliva versus hair, the, the allergies are all different depending on where okay. the tissue it was taken from. Then what often also happens is, you know, they'll have the baseline test done, the first test done, and they'll change a bunch of things usually not seeing that much improvement like you mm -hmm. mentioned and then they'll do a second test to compare to the first test and that second test is often very confusing for people and for veterinarians because it's completely different from the first test because of all the changes that were made so what is happening with the with that is what my interpretation is, is that the immune system, if you think about the immune system, like we, we actually don't know a lot about it. We know a little bit. And what we do know about the immune system is a highly adaptable, dynamic system. So that means that it can change like that. So when you take a test for this blood test on this day at this hour after dinner after or no empty stomach whatever it is you're getting a picture a snapshot of what the immune system is doing right at that very moment and what it's reacting to more here there at that moment then when you do the second test 
and you see, oh, look, it's so different. You're seeing a different snapshot, but it, they both could be true. You know what I mean? Mm. Because the, the immune system does isn't fixed. It's not a static operation. Humans and animals are not static beings. We're so dynamic, energetically, physically, cellular level, all of these things. So, so to to try and determine an allergy from a test like that is almost impossible. So that's one aspect, and then the other aspect that is a little bit funny in terms of of the conventional um, process of of dealing with. Um, food allergies, which are actually quite rare, um, is they go from one kibble to another kibble to another kibble, and they only look at the protein that's in that kibble. When there's 25 and other ingredients in that food. Only 25? Maybe 100. <laughs> if it's a really good one, like whole food one, maybe it has 25, right? So... <laughs> How the heck do you know what is it the protein from the meat or is it there's legumes there's you know there's proteins in everything there's proteins in plants there's proteins in everything so and this is what allergies save an antibody to protein when you create an antibody it attacks that protein right and and that becomes the same memory like a virus is also made of protein, right? And that's how our immune systems will say, this is uh, okay to come into the cell. This is an enemy going to hurt us. So, it, And the more intelligent your immune system is based on your microbiome status, your, your dietary status, your cellular health, that determines how intelligent your immune system can be. If your immune system is completely overloaded with inflammation on every single system of your body, how well do you think that that body can determine what is good for it and what is not? It's impossible. There's too much noise. There's too mm. much noise, right? So when I see these highly inflamed animals, the first thing we have to do, take a look at their gut health, we have to take a look at how to reduce the overall systemic inflammation in this animal's body. And then, once we've dealt with that in the ways that you know, cleaning up the diet is such a huge, it can clear up the picture so much. But if it doesn't, even if it doesn't, we still have information that that is useful because then there's something else besides diet that's actually contributing to this problem is it stress is it water some kind of something in the water is it something do you live next to a farm that sprays their plants with glyphosate or who knows right like mm -hmm. there's so many things that it could be from so and you know our bodies can pattern themselves to like okay now i have this I'm overloaded with this toxin or I'm overloaded with this allergen or I'm overloaded with this thing. And then it gets tired and the more tired it gets, the more inflamed it gets and the more in, unable to deal with that in external stress. So this is more of a holistic way of looking at health, but you could literally apply this information to any disease.
in humans and dogs and horses and cats. And, and this is how my mind works when I'm looking at a sick animal. Is not about you know a test that got done or it's like what is like yes it's nice to have the diagnostics but we also have to correlate that with everything else the right. very large picture right it's not about the protein that's in the kibble that's very very narrow uh, and that is right? usually what happens yes it is and i see that a lot and people get pattern like they get told that it's the meat protein in the food that's the problem and it that's doesn't make scientific sense because everything has protein everything could be an allergen <laughs> like anything could be an allergen so it, unless you're putting that dog on a like you did totally beef diet totally nothing else but that protein and then you see it's not that protein it's something else right yeah. so you're explaining exactly what you know it makes sense to me that you know you wouldn't you wouldn't even necessarily be looking at food with this dog because you're doing such a mono diet and this dog is still having this major problem right so that so there has to be some other input and support and direction that you would have to take to, to determine what the cause is and how to help that dog I still don't know what the cause was. All I know is that 45 milligrams of CBD a day fixed it. Yeah, which is so amazing. You know, sometimes these things are also generational. Um, you know, the, the microbiome status of the mother at the birth of the babies. Um, you know, for many generations, if the dogs have had their microbiomes destroyed, over generations of dogs, it can it can really destroy that line. Well, uh, in 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 his case, um, the parents and the grandparents were in country, um, right. in the hands of the same breeder, who is also for over decades now feeds raw. Interesting. So, you know, that's why I, a, I, something environmental, something environmental. Possibly, I I don't know. I never got to to find out what it was. All I knew is that with with the CBD, it went away. Amazing. And I, and I was just happy for that, and that that was good oh. enough for me at the time. Yeah, you know? and there there are some like, you know, things you could determine just from the fact that that was what helped him. You know. Um, and, and it's so interesting. Sometimes that can be like a reset for the endocannabinoid system in the body. Sometimes that's actually turned off and dysregulated. And that's actually the problem, right? Because we all have that system in mm. our bodies um, and that can get dysregulated. So CBD, can, if, if that is the problem, often you'll see quite a difference in CBD. So um, sometimes you won't see that. And so you determine, okay, it's not that, it's something else, right? So it's great that you were able to kind of explore and just stay open. And then you found something that worked, which is like yeah. the ultimate goal, right? It's not about being right or wrong. It's just about what, what's going to No, I just wanted wrong. to help him, you know? I just yeah. wanted to help him because, you know, we, I was really close to that dog. I mean, the closest probably than all my dogs in those years. 
you know, in those 40-something years. There's very few dogs that I got that close to. And now, within a short two and a half years, I'm as close, if not closer, with, with Force, with my Rottweiler. That's cool. Okay. You know? So, you know, I, we're goofing off all the time. He's a very serious dog. He's a dominant dog. He's, he's, if I take him to, to the vet, it actually is as, at the point where they can't really touch him. Right. Yes. I have a dog like that, too. I, you know, I tell him I have to handle my dog. He, went, he had a knee surgery, and for even just for the x-ray, he had to be knocked out completely. Yeah. And even to knock him out, because that it's is hard. something that's given IV, right? We had to tranquilize him first so that I can then hold him for them to put the IV oh, in. Oh, he's a wild animal. <laughs> you know, so they were, I, think, I think they were quite happy when I picked him up after and, and you know, didn't come back. <laughs> because <laughs> I think they, I think they were a little afraid of him, yeah. you know. And and he's a he's a very serious dog, and yeah. but I can do all those things. Sir. I mean, yeah. he's he's giving me some resistance too, like with eardrops. He hates eardrops. Ah, uh, yes. You know, so if he does have an ear infection or something like that, and to put in the eardrops, so yeah, I put five drops of each ear count what no it's a squirt <laughs> this there's a squirt in one year a squirt that is what all you're, getting. all you're getting yeah. because he he turns into he's not aggressive about he's not trying to bite me but he's yeah, he, he turns into of, he turns into an mma fighter right he he deploys gracie jiu-jitsu <laughs> he's he's very very powerful person. and twists and turns under your hand he, it's difficult to hold on to him to get long enough to get the drops in you know so you just get to lift the ear and squirt and then rub it in. And that's how it is with him. Yeah. But yeah, that's, he's, that's, he's a wonderful dog. Makes and sense he's, though, he's, right? Yeah. You know. You got you to gotta actually, like, this is another thing that is maybe not nutritionally related. But I see, I, I saw a really good meme about it the other day. Like, if you get a dog, if you get a breed specific with dog that's a breed that then starts to show breed specific behaviors and you don't like it that sounds like a you problem <laughs> yes 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 <laughs> because if you absolutely if you breed if, if that's you, like really bred to do this thing this anybody behavior, anybody who goes through my videos that i have on on the social media the free videos they I will hear me say it many times rottweiler is not for everybody no Oh, you have to no. you have to be a certain type of person to successfully own a good Rottweiler. We're not talking yeah. about a watered down version of it, but a true Rottweiler. You have to know what you're doing. You do. It's not because a you can end up in trouble real quick if you don't. <laughs> because they will challenge you, and if you're if you're not prepared to to stand your ground, you have a problem. Yes. You know, and that you, is the, and is the type is. of dog that I like. You know. Well, and, and, you know, for me as like, I'm a single female and I live by myself and I really like to have a dog that can protect me. Of course. And that's why I put, not why, but one of the reasons I put so much into my dogs as far as training goes, as far as diet goes, because I want that longevity and I want that protection and I want that relationship. Yes. you know 
put so much time in. And then, you know, I've, I've in my first, you know, my first dogs that I ever had, you know, you put all this time in and then they die of cancer when they're seven. You start mm-hmm. all over again. And, you know, not only the heartbreak of losing that animal, but also like it's never the same in the two animals. It's always a different relationship. Yeah. And, you know, then you start all over again. And, the, you know, the first three years are so intense. You're going to put so much work in. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's so much energy and so much effort. And, you know, there's frustration. And you, know, you have to, you know, be creative. And you have to learn, how to get to know this dog, right? Yeah. And and as they're shifting and their maturity and all of these things, right? So you, you're, you know, to invest in them just from day one is you know such a pleasure for me when i get to do puppy cases because it's just so rewarding to me that this animal is going to have this entire like you know people buy pet insurance for their animals and i i just don't you know i never buy pet insurance for my animals partly because i have so many of them it's very it would be like a thousand dollars a month for me to do that. Mm-hmm. um but the best insurance that I can give them is, you know, food and exercise and love, really. Honestly, like that's is yeah. very basic stuff, right? But, you know, I also look at dogs in terms of like from a dog's perspective. What is life like for the dog in my house? What is is it being honored as a dog or is it being asked to be a human this is another thing that's really important to me dog and, is a dog is a I dog have a lot of clients that have dogs that live in the city they live in apartments they're and you know they're not living dog lives and so um this can be a very very stressful situation for a dog so you literally have to think of them as like an alien that came down from outer space. You have to figure out how to integrate this dog into your human world so that they can still be themselves and express themselves, but also be comfortable in your world and you be comfortable having them in your world, right? So so that's like a whole other energetic you know, stress related thing that I see with a lot of my clients is just why I can employ homeopathy in those um, cases, which is often. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, oftentimes clients that come to me to see their dogs with a certain type of disease, the owners actually have the same disease mm-hmm. as the dog. So think of how much the dog is taking on of our stress, of our you know, all of that kind of stuff is all this very energetic level, um, but also can be the source of disease too, right? So uh, that's where, you know, we get a little bit more into like holistic land, but mm-hmm. um, very important. And I think as a, as a trainer, you would probably see that very clearly. Yes. As you intimately see the relationship between people and their dogs. So Or the absence of it. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's just some. Sometimes you see dogs that people bring it for training, and then 
when I ask them to do something with the dog, it gets very awkward. <laughs> so you want me to do what? Yeah, yeah. And, and you can tell it's the first time they have this dog on a leash and they're actually handling the dog. Oh. Yeah. You know, and like, okay, this is going to take a little longer than planned. You know, yeah. you're actually more of a human trainer than a dog trainer in some senses. <laughs> yeah. I always tell people the dogs are easy, right? Right. It's the humans are the complicated ones. Be right. Because there's this natural resistance to change. Yes. And that is the problem. The dog doesn't have that. If I'm showing the dog, here, I want you to do X and you're getting this food. Or I want you to stop this behavior or I'm going to tug on the leash. Yeah? The dog understands very quickly that what's good for, for it, what's not, what works, what doesn't. So the dog is, is on board really it's quick. Yeah, yeah, the dog is on board really, really quickly. And then it, it's the human, yes. you know, that, that is most of the work. I agreed. Yeah. I used to do the, the dog training. I used to do puppy classes. And, um, I teach people how to quicker train their dogs. And, um, I definitely had that same frustration. Like I, I can't create a relationship for you and your dog, you know, you yeah. have to the relationship with your dog and if your dog doesn't take you seriously and you happen to have a rottweiler that's not a good thing wrong breed <laughs> wrong breed, you wrong know? breed. yeah golden, re golden retriever would have been a better choice right yeah exactly. you know yeah and that is, it it happens a lot it happens a lot right? so you can't but it's a bit like as my 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 uncle always said you can lead a horse to the water, but you can't force it to drink, right? right. So you can only show people. Yeah. So I did, there was times where I got the, the complaints. Yeah, when you hear the dog is on his best behavior, and then the moment you walk out the gate, it, all hell breaks loose. I'm like, yeah, so if you do what I do, you get the same behavior that I get when I'm with your dog. That, that's as simple as it gets. It is as simple as I can make it for you. I say, I have no objection if you want to film what I'm doing with the dog so that you can go back to it. Great. Do that. Stand in the yard with your phone and, and check it out. You yeah. know, so you can go back and do the same thing and you will see the change in your dog. Yeah. But I can't do this for you. No, you can't. I teach your dog, your dog understands what's wanted, and then you have to make the dog want to do it for you. That 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 is a you thing. You know, you have to you have to create that. I can't yeah. do this for you. You get to see people's you know? levels and, and that is a really cool thing about training animals and learning how to adapt and you know, it does make you easier. It does make you more adaptable and it does break your ego right in half. Like really does, because there's no two dogs that are the same. No, and I, never. I think the horses, right? Like I, I've trained quite a few horses in my life. I'm 40 years old. I've been riding since I was seven. I've, I've ridden young horses. I've ridden all different breeds of horses, and I have a horse now that has been a very big challenge for me, and it's been a very big learning curve of like you know the difference between how it should be done versus what's actually working for this horse and you know, mm -hmm. 
with an animal that's a thousand pounds who can just run you over or like kick you or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's a whole other level of energetic respect that needs to occur um, because, you know, they're flight animal. They're not a prey, prey drive animal and they're huge. So, you know, you're this tiny little thing in their space. So how do you communicate with them? It's only through energy, really, honestly. Like, you know, it's it doesn't have much to do with force yeah. uh, <laughs> if you're very successful at it, right? So, um, yeah, I do find that, that all of those, you know, my, my, my dogs, my horses have taught me that, you know, I, I need to stop having an agenda. And, you know, my intention is, is what's the most important thing. And, uh, and also my, you know, my intention to include this animal as a sovereign being rather than like, you're going to do what I say. This is my world. <laughs> it, do it doesn't work with every animal. Nope. There's, there's even some, some super dominant dogs where that would not work. Right. Totally. Because they will choose violence every time you challenge them. You got it. <laughs> right? So those, those yeah. dogs, you just have to win them over. We do. You have to show them, I'm prepared to go down this road with you, but let's not. Yeah, it seems like a you lot know, of that. And then there are some dogs <laughs> that if you don't go down that road, yes. you're also in trouble. So it depends on the individual. right? Yeah. And to me, the key is recognizing which one it is. You know, I've I've met dogs. I've was called a three and a half year old untrained male Rottweiler that um, has a problem with men. Oh dear. <laughs> so when I came there to train the dog, the dog went nuts in the kennel. Then I got I got the owner to to take him out. I said, "Does he know sit? Yeah, just put him in a sit and start next to him." And then I moved sideways towards her and was standing next to her. And I just had a half an hour conversation with her. And the dog eventually calmed down a little bit. And I said, okay, let's, let's walk forward. And then both, all three of us, side by side, started moving forward. And then we, we, drove, we walked like big ovals in the yard. Yeah. And at some point in time, I said, when he's not looking, next time a car passes and he looks at the gate, hand me the end of your leash, but hold on to the other side. Yeah. And she did that. And I said, okay, I want you to slow down now. Let go of the leash and slow down. So she let go, and then it was just him and me. And then he happened to look to the to the right, and he realized, oh, shoots. I'm he's, walking with this guy. And he's, <laughs> and he's holding the leash. So he now has the power to control me. What do I do? So he rumbled at first, and I completely ignored him and just kept walking. And then... I shortened the leash a bit, gave him a little talk to get closer to me. And he got closer and closer, and I was walking, and then I put my the hand closest to him, just let it dangle next to me as I'm walking. And then I felt him sniffing it. And then eventually he nudged it, and then I just scratched him on the side of his cheek a little bit, for just for a split second, then a little longer, and a little longer, and then behind his head. Of course, not on top of his head. Yeah. Right? Because that would have been a mistake. And then I got to finish. The end result is I trained the dog. Yeah. And we actually bonded quite strongly, <laughs> I must say. 
Well, you know, when I, when you take the time to recognize what the dog says it needs in that moment, what does it need? What does that dog, what are they telling you right now? They, they're telling you they have a need. And if you ignore that need, that's usually where the problems start because they don't trust yeah. you. In his case, what, what he actually had was a little bit of an insecurity and he was just defensive about it. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't downright fear. He was a confident dog, but his <laughs> nerve strength wasn't all that high. So he every time he gets spooked, he would choose violence to get out of it. And that and that is really where he was at, right? And once he realized there's not always a need to do this, you know, then he calmed down overall, even with other guys that he saw. Yeah. He would watch them closely, but he would no longer be... Like, I want to eat you. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so he got a lot better over That's... over the course of time. Yeah, you know? it really is amazing. Like, you know, it seems like, you know, magic and dog whispering and horse whispering mm. and things like this. But it really is just that person's ability to very intuitively, like, it, they're just tuned in. They know what the dog is saying. The dog doesn't have to dog is telling you a lot of things about what it needs every second so you got to really slow down your own thought processes to be able to tune into that and i I think that's why animals are so therapeutic right sometimes little dogs you know dogs this size yes (laughs) the little tiny ones I think I had more of those trying to bite me than big dogs. Oh, I agree. I've been bitten by more of those. Than and often, <laughs> oftentimes, you know, you just keep moving forward and they back out and you back and you move forward. Move forward. And eventually, it's like you're the border collie and they're the sheep. You That's heard right. them into a corner. And when they realize, oh my God, I'm in a corner. So all that bravado didn't do anything for them. So they yep. shut down a little bit. Yeah. They're super stressed at that point in time, so you can't go overboard, but they, they're shut down for this split second. Yeah. And then you offer them food. Then you make yourself smaller and less intimidating. And you give some more food. And just give them time, hour, hour and a half. And then, like, and, and then, and then you, have, <laughs> you have them on the leash and say, come on, let's go for a walk. Yeah. You know? And then all of a sudden, they, they kind of reluctantly walk with you. They have little flare-ups, and then the flare-ups, the time between the flare-ups gets longer and longer and longer. And then eventually, you come to the to a training session to that house, and he's greeting you by the gate with the tail wagon. Oh. You know? Again, just insecurity and has never learned how to cope with it. So... And also, people are bad communicators when it comes to body language. And they don't actually, a lot of times, like, you know, you really do have to, like, be very self-aware to know what you're saying to the dog in your body language. Because if you're really nervous or stressed, or then you do tell your dog that. And yeah. your dog can become afraid because you're afraid or because you're stressed or because you're not confident or and whatever. Often, and oftentimes it gets misinterpreted too. So oh, he's protective over me. No. He's using you as a strength magnet. 
He goes uh, behind behind your legs or next to you. He draws some strength, feels more confident when he's when he's close to you, and then lashes out. Yeah, I know people you know. like to put their their uh, versions of what what the dog the reasons why the dog is doing the behavior, which is also yeah. difficult because you can't change it if you think it's a certain way. <laughs> <laughs> but that is the tricky part. Then to convince people that no, it's not really this, right? It's uh, it's, re it's really that. Yeah. And then make them see it. I think that is that is the the, the biggest challenge in this. Everybody is to, to make people see it. To get yeah. them to understand and to recognize it so that the next time it happens, they know how to deal with it. You show them a way, to, okay, this is what you do when that happens. And then, you know, they, they, you get a phone call. Say, oh, it happened this week and, and it did this and, and he was quiet. And, you know, I could let somebody come into the apartment without getting bitten for the first time in two years. Right. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Keep going. You know. Yeah. Well, that's the benefit of having someone that has experience, right? Because you can assess these things and you've seen them before and you understand what the dog needs. Yeah, and the same with, with, with food on, 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 on your end, you know. It's, yes. I learned a whole lot, you know, just in, in this conversation. Oh, I'm really glad. And, yeah, yeah. And I do blog, you can... Check out if you want to go down the nerdy route. And I always uh, put a lot of scientific articles attached to any. If I, if I am making a statement about something, I always back it up with science. Um, not, it's not just my opinion, it's my ideals. Um, so I do, I do have my own opinions at this point, but it's through my, you know, education and, and clinical experience that I've gotten there. And, um, I, I have had a lot of like, you know, having to change my mindset, having to, having to find new ways of doing things that happens over and over and over and over again, and any path, any learning process. And I think kind of that's why we're here is to just keep always learning. Right. So, um, you know, and I think that just makes you better at whatever you've decided to do is the more you explore it, the more you can understand it the better you get at it so you know i really do sure. try to have a very open mind and also you know really respect the the needs of my my people clients too because you know they're coming to me with a problem and it's not about um making them feel bad about true what's happening um it's about helping them both better and more comfortable and healthier whatever right so um i i do feel like that's you know whatever you decide to do i think once that becomes your intention then you're you're ready to actually teach other people <laughs> because until you've had like your own you know ego implosion on these <laughs> on these subjects that you're interested in um you know, the rightness and the wrongness of things. And animals are so awesome. That they let you know, right? They let you know right away. You know. They're like, no, that's not how life works <laughs> at all. They let you know right away when you go wrong. <laughs> you can see <laughs> it instantly. You, listen, you keep having the same problems over and over and over again, which is 
uh, the definition of insanity, right? So I, I come across dogs all the time that make me feel real stupid. Like right? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing this for four to six years, but I've never came across one of you. you yeah, because <laughs> the... I always look at that as such an opportunity. Yes, and I am, I am, and I embrace those. Right? My my wife always asks me, so you get so attached to your dogs, you get so extremely close to your dogs, and you are so devastated when they go. Yeah. Like I can't function for a week. Like when when Ninja passed on, I was out of it for a week. Yeah. You know, didn't want to talk to people. Yeah. And and I have to, right, in my job. And so why do you put yourself with that over and over? I said, like, babes, the only time that I'm without a dog is when I'm dead. Right. And then yep. I meet and then I meet all the ones that I had. Right? Yes. I go for <laughs> I go for the big reunion, right? Yes. Because I be, I will go for it every time again because I believe that every dog that I have is there to teach me something. Oh. And when they're done teaching is when they move on. Right. Yeah. You know. Totally, totally true. And so I I will never be coming to Trinidad in April. And getting my rescue rod in October. Sure. You see that time in between was the most miserable time of my life. Hey. Because I did not have a dog. I was only half a human at that point. It's like I can't be without a dog. Just, I can't I can't see life without a dog. Yeah, I feel the same way and I also feel that way about horses too. Yeah. It, it, once was, you you have them, it's like now I am now. <laughs> I was I was supposed to be working with horses really. When I was a child. Yeah, my grandmother wanted me to 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 learn how to show jump horses. Oh really? Yes. And took me to a stable a big and, one. And, and put me on the horse and I loved it was a huge female. When in Germany the horses are not short. Right? I, I haven't that horse, so they're, I know. They're fa fairly tall, and I was, <laughs> and I was, what six years old, and I'm on top of this horse, and I'm hugging the neck, and I love it. I didn't want to come down, and on the way home, on the back seat of my father's car, I almost died of an allergic reaction because my bronchial oh, system just no. closed up. So I ended up Got in it. the I ended up in the hospital. Oh dear. And then the doctor told me, okay, he's allergic to, to animal hair and to keep him away from animals. Oh, no. And my father's <laughs> like, all animals? Well, yeah. We have dogs. Yeah, well, all animals. Dog, fat chance of that happening. I can't keep him away from dogs. He'll find yeah. a way, you know. And so, okay, then just restrict it to dogs. And, you know, he will over time desensitize. And I spent time in, in allergy clinics and all that and learned how to control my breathing under stress and, and all those things in the pool. And yes. They put me in a glass box and blasted me with all kind of things to see what exactly I'm allergic to and then vacuumed oh, it out and gave me medication to fix it. And yes. felt like a guinea pig. But I stuck with dogs and I'm glad I did. They're very, very important. Sounds yes. like they're important. 
part of your life. So oh yeah, yeah, they are my they are my life. It's my family and my dogs. So, and know. are you allergic to them now? No. Well, horses, I I'm a lot more tolerant. So if if in Trinidad we have carnival and there's police horses, so when yep. they go through the crowd and I always feel sorry for the horses in this heat as well as the riders. So during carnival time, I buy a bunch of bottled water and I give some to the, the, the riders and I ask them if, if they would allow me to give to the horse and then I cup my hand and pour some water for the horses. Ah, I And And just touch the nose a little bit. I feel it a little bit after. Yeah. But it's no longer the, the, the life-threatening thing. Yeah, usually it's the first time. And I just walk with a Ventolin inhaler when I do this. Yeah, yeah, just in case. And yeah, but I can't. Yeah. I can't work with them. I can't make it that intense. I trained a dog on a horse farm, and I felt it. Oh yeah. So I stayed in a different part of that farm with the dog when I was working it to make sure. But yeah, it's not not I'm as bad as it was body. then. Yeah. Bodies decide to make an antibody, a real antibody to something. And yeah really be difficult to change that yeah i know i have i have asthmatic allergies too and i have many tools that i use to to reduce the reaction that i have mm -hmm. when i have a problem but i do have inhalers and uh occasionally have to use them and that's you know but it's very few and far between i, I have yeah. to say a lot of people have problems where they have to take it every day and um, I, at one point, I was having that happen, and I was very determined to reduce, you know, use it for emergencies only, or right. you know, going into an emergency. So, um, but that's also mind over matter stuff too, right? And yeah, I that's do, part of it. It's the not panicking part. Wim Hof, you know, you do know Wim Hof. I do his methods, breathing methods, and cold showers and I haven't quite made it to the ice bath stages but I would like to get there at some point um but all, all of those things have been really helpful for that and something that we can do as humans that you know not not necessarily we can teach for a dog um but yeah definitely we can kind of heal ourselves on the almost more mind related levels we have a lot more mental pathology in our bodies as well <laughs> which is a whole other topic <laughs> yeah that is another a whole another show day, <laughs> <I would say. laughs> all right so one i have one last nutrition related question that I, I wanted to, to ask you before we <laughs> before we wrap up sure there are different activity levels in a dog. Good. There is times where training is more intense. There is times where it's less. So if you feed a certain amount of raw food, if you know you're going to increase the activity level of the dog, do you increase all ingredients or do you just increase certain ingredients? Ah, that's a good question. Um, first, 
I, I feel like a lot of people are afraid to change the feeding amount that they're doing on a daily basis, which is like, you know, I feed based on how much energy my dog is expelling. She goes for a three hour hike. She's going to get probably almost twice as much as she would on a normal day. Right. So, um, so there's that. Uh, so in that sense, I would just increase her entire food, like her meals, whatever she's destined to get that week. I'm just double the whole meal. Um, and then I also use a lot of extras that are like high energy extras. So when she was training very heavily with like, you know, she was doing agility, tracking and a dog diving all in the same week, right? She'd do one of each week and then she was on a farm and she's running around everywhere. Um, so she, at one point in her training, I think as a three or four year old, she was eating about four pounds of food a day. And so, and it was quite difficult to keep weight on her with, with a more meat-based diet because you have to feed so much protein. Plus, you know, Protein and fat are really where the energy is coming from for dogs. Um, but if you use very low glycemic um, vegetables, you can also add um, for these dogs that are doing these crazy sports where they're like, you know, it's not like a house dog, like they're like spelling, like explosions of energy and so much more energetic need. The same with like a an athlete, like a human athlete. If you give them very, very high quality carbohydrates, which dogs in the wild do eat um, on their own, um, then you can create energy that way as well. So um, our main three things that we would do would be like pasture raised eggs. Um, I would do duck eggs as well because they're higher in fat. Um, extra fish like i do canned sardines uh, packed in water not in oil and um i would give her up to like six of those cans of meat which is like 600 grams and that has a lot of really good like those omega-3 fats but it's also like high calorie um lots of really nice minerals in there as well that are difficult to get if you're just feeding land animals um and then I would also use, some people use like really, really well-cooked quinoa, which has got protein in it, but it's also got some really nice carbohydrate that, that is usable for animals that are doing these very, very, very crazy top-level sports where they're it's like huge muscle mass, super athletic. Like, you know, I know some people are super like not for brains, but in my experience with my dog as a working dog, um, I would include some, I, she loves yams, like baked sweet potatoes and yams. So I would bake those in the, um, in the skin. And then I would feed her like a half a yam or a, a third of a yam with her meals. And that was one of the only ways that I could keep up with like keeping her condition the way that I wanted it to be. Because so the only reason to feed uh, a high quality carbohydrate on a regular basis like that would be with these explosive energetic like athlete type of exercises right so i would include those on the days when she was dock diving 
and when she was doing agility because she just using so much energy so quickly. And if I didn't, then she wasn't able to build muscle the same. So the, those carbohydrates give them enough energy during those times to be able to use all the protein and the fat and all the other good things to actually build muscle. So instead of just using it as caloric energy, right? So then you get better body conditioning and you can see it in your dog. Like you can usually see like, how much do I need to add or not add if they're getting heavy, if they're, you know, you, especially as a trainer, you know exactly what you want your dog to look like. Yes. Um, so, and if they don't look like that, then, then you kind of adjust things. And so, you know, those, those extras, um, canned oysters are also really great for mineral intake more than energy. Like they do have protein in them too. Um, if you're going to use quinoa, it has to be like super, super cooked, like mushy, like not like you would eat it, but like very digested already because it's got a very hard casing on it. It's very hard for dogs to digest, even hard for some humans to digest, which I found out when I started eating it and I had a terrible gut pain because I didn't cook it long enough. So, um, so those are good, uh, good ways to add energy. I do. And I've had some cases of dogs that have had like very long bouts of diarrhea where they lose weight. And, uh, one of the ways that we get them back is, well, abstaining from antibiotics, <laughs> switching them slowly onto a cooked diet, but lots and lots of pumpkin, lots of squashes cooked, um, yam, sweet potatoes, because they're so high in prebiotic fibers. And then as you're, you're changing the, the food, you're also doing the probiotics, you're doing the prebiotic fibers, and then you can slowly switch them over to, and I think that a dog that's an athlete has a different microbiome than a dog that's living in a city, basically, you know, like, or a dog that's living on a farm, they have a completely different microbiome than a dog that's living in the city, right? So that also kind of plays a part. So you can also look at their poops to see what you want that to look like. Um, and uh, your dog's energy level is really what, important. What is the ideal consistency as we're talking about? Uh, it depends on what they eat. So there's like kind of a range. Um, there's a really cool girl and I don't know what her name is, but she's on Instagram and her tag or her, her handle is raw feeding movement, I think. And she has this graph of poo that I love that is all like raw, raw feeding poo. That's like the range of what poos will look like based on what you feed. And so it is variable, especially if you're doing like lots of variety with your dog's diet, you're going to see a range, but you don't want loose poops. You don't want a lot of mucus in the poo. Like every once in a while, a mucusy poo maybe happens, but mucus is a sign of inflammation in the gut. So you want to, you know, if that's going on for several days and you want to, you know, Pay attention, probably give them some marshmallow roots, some anti-inflammatory gut supportive herbs, uh, maybe some homeopathy, things like that. Take a look at what they're eating, maybe adjust. 
You can put bone broth in. It's another really good extra, really hydrating, really high in collagen, super great for the gut, super great for the joints and bones. Um, it's just all around awesome. As long as it's like bone broth that you make from bones. Um, and uh, yeah, so like if they've eaten a chicken, you're going to see a different food, which we kind of said before, like it's a lighter, crumblier, but it shouldn't be so hard that it's hard to pass. So if you're finding that you're feeding raw and your dog is getting constipated or having these very dry stools where they're kind of incompletely pooping and then pooping many, many, many times um, to try and get their poops out, it means probably too much bone in the diet. Uh, and that's a good way to check to make sure you're either feeding enough bone or you're not feeding enough. Uh, you're not feeding enough bone or you're feeding too much. Um, is it, that's really the best way to tell if you're feeding enough uh, calcium, especially with younger dogs, because you can feed them up with like, lots of prey, prey things. But if they're getting constipated, you need to add some more meat and organs into that. So, so poo is like a very useful tool to... Um, understanding what you know how to adjust the dog's diet um, and some people are really against feeding vegetables to dogs but you know through my research with the wolves and the coyotes they do eat a lot of plants but they eat them in very specific ways and very specific times um, and then you know with the squashes and the pumpkins and things like that we can use those intermittently um, because we know that they do have health benefits um, but we're also kind of using that, uh, in cases where either they're having a crazy high workload or they're having some kind of like very serious digestive issue that we are trying to resolve. Um, those are kind of the, the types of vegetables and then like grasses and green leafy vegetables, fermented fruits and fermented root vegetables, those types of things are actually very natural adults to eat. So those can all be added as extras, eggs, uh, eggs, raw or cooked? All of those. Um, eggs I usually feed them. Raw? Yeah. Yeah. Because they, if you cook them, it does degrade the value of vitamins. And how, uh, how often should, should a dog get egg? Depends on their size. So I would say, like for my 80-pound dog, she gets, um, we have chickens here, so uh, right. kind of based on how many the chickens are laying at certain times of the year. No, what I, what I meant was how, how often per week. Is it every day in the food or is it? Every two um, or three I don't days. Do okay. I usually do like okay. So I rotate. I'll probably do for three to four a week with her. Okay. I'll probably have up to six. Okay. Um, and then make her plan sardines. She gets three to four plants a week. But when she was younger, she would get six to eight cans or four like the frozen mackerel sardines like that. Um. So, yeah, and, and a lot of those things, I would consider them extras. So, 
I, I, I get this question a lot. So what I decided to do is I'm releasing an ebook on my website on November the 15th. And it's going to be kind of a cheat sheet. It's going to have some recipes for like home balanced, like AFO friendly raw diets, um, but also uh, a rotational cheat sheet of extras, like food extras that are species appropriate for dogs that can be rotated in. And I put them in the categories so that, you know, you have all, a whole list of like omega 3s and a whole list of like super green foods. And a whole list of like dairy powders and like veggies, probiotics, omega threes, all these different um, categories, and then all the foods that are the species appropriate foods for dogs that would be in that category, so that you're not overlapping. Like, say you're doing like, you know, three from the same category. You don't need to do three from the same category. right? You can do like get in the greens where some people are doing like kelp and alfalfa and um, wheatgrass powder and all these things that are doing all every single day whereas what i usually do is i'll get one of those i'll do that until the bag's done and then i'll rotate on to different to basically uh, because kelp for example you kelp all the time you can actually get iodine but if you give them no kelp then they can have too low iodine and iodine is extremely important. We can overdo it and can underdo it, right? So that's the beauty of the patient Um, But some people, you know, it's hard to categorize. Like, what are these? Like, unless you're a nutritionist, you don't know the nutritional profiles of all of these. How to overlay them? Overdo. Okay, that's that's been one of my one of my to do lists for quite. Some it's going to be a downloadable PDF that I'm going to have available for people so that they can really like not only just do the basics of raw, like, you know, the meat and everything, but like, how do you actually like give this dog a really amazing diet without, you know, without having to have all of the mats, you know, <laughs> because I like to do the math, but not everybody wants to do so, <laughs> trying to make it easier for people. Yeah, great. Now, I will definitely look out for that ebook. Yeah, yeah, I'll let you know when it comes out. But November 15th, follow me on Instagram. We'll, we'll see. I do. Great. Excellent. <laughs> I think I will find, right. I think I, I saw you on there, so I will, I will add you to the show. So I can see you <laughs> All right. Well, Sarah, it's been an absolute blast. Yeah, me too. I had okay. a really good time talking to you, and we've been at it for two and a half hours now. Yeah, didn't even, didn't even feel it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I'm super grateful that you agreed to do this. Um, I'm very happy to have learned a lot, and now in a position to, you know, feel more confident in what I'm telling people because before it was okay this is what I do you know yeah. and and try and get people to, to, to do some of it you know and I feel much better knowing that not all of it was wrong 
No, no, you didn't. You know, so that um, yeah, and I will send people your way if they want to get more into it. Absolutely. You know. Oh, I am taking. I'll get them to, to check you out and. And yeah, my blog is a great 